Howdy, folks. This is Jimmy Aiken of the Jimmy Aiken Podcast, and you're listening to Catholic Foodie. It slices, dices, and makes julian fries. This is Jeff Young, the Catholic Foodie at CatholicFoodie.com, and you're listening to episode 129 of the Catholic Foodie, King Cake and Mardi Gras in New Orleans. Welcome, folks, to the Catholic Foodie, where food means faith. I'm your host, Jeff Young, and today we're in the middle of carnival season down here in New Orleans. Only one more week before parades start to roll. Man, I can't wait. Uh, you know, you may have never been to Mardi Gras. You may not even have pleasant thoughts when you think of Mardi Gras. Uh, maybe the only thing you know about Mardi Gras is what you have seen on MTV and the news channels. But, you know, for those folks, bad news is good news, so they like to portray the seedier side of things. But that's not what Mardi Gras is all about. Believe it or not, Mardi Gras is actually Catholic. And we're going to talk about that today right here at the Catholic Foodie, where food meets faith. That's right. We're going to talk about the Catholic roots of Mardi Gras and also the delicious tradition of the king cake. Sarah Reinhardt joins us with her Mary in the Kitchen segment. And today, Sarah reflects on finding Mary in the hunker-down days of winter and discovering the kitchen as the heart of her home. All this and more right here. And folks, i got to tell you right up front, I'm not feeling too well. <laughs> it's been a few weeks since I've done a show. Um, last episode was actually a uh, hijacking of the Catholic Weekend Podcast, an SQPN show, with Captain Jeff, Steve Nelson, and Maria Johnson. And uh, they had me on the Catholic Weekend show just a couple of weeks back, at, right before I got sick. And uh, I asked uh, Captain Jeff if I could hijack that and put it into my uh, RSS feed, and he gave me permission to do that. So thank you very much, Captain Jeff, for that. But, um, you know, I'm still not quite there. You can tell by my voice I'm uh, still under the weather. But uh, you know what? It's Mardi Gras, and I mean, we got to roll. Yeah, that's what we got to do. The time, time is ticking. Uh, it's been a couple of weeks since I did a show, and we we just can't wait. So... I am uh, not sounding great, but please bear with me, folks. We've got an excellent show today. Sarah Reinhardt joins us, and uh, lots of good stuff about Mardi Gras and its Catholic roots and also king cake. But as we start this episode, I want to thank our sponsor, DivineOffice.org. You know, Divine Office Catholic Ministry provides top-of-the-line Catholic apps for your mobile devices and for your Mac. The full Liturgy of the Hours, an app of Catholic prayers, a Bible app, and now an app of the Catholic Encyclopedia. These folks know what they're doing, and they do it so well. Not only are these apps beautiful to look at and easy to use, but they also help you to live out and grow in your faith. You can find out more about these apps at divineoffice.org. You could not ask for a more noble cause than that. Sonny, true love is the greatest thing in the world. Except for a nice MLT, mutton, lettuce, and tomato sandwich when the mutton is nice and lean and the tomatoes ripe. They're so perky. I love that. Well, we have feedback today. Uh, I got three three pieces of feedback uh, for you today. The first... You know, I received a call a few weeks back from Craig Poirier in Vancouver, and uh, I'm just now getting to share this with you, of course. I've been under the weather, haven't done a show in a couple of weeks, and I sounded terrible then. I sound okay now, not really too good, of course, you can tell, but I'm a little bit better now. But um, anyway, I'm finally, I'm happy to finally be able to share this message with you from our good friend Craig. You may know that name, Craig Poirier, from uh, the Facebook page, you know, Catholic Foodie Facebook page at facebook.com slash Catholic Foodie. Craig is always making comments over there and posting things, and um, I really appreciate that. And uh, he he's just been a great uh, supporter of the, and encourager of uh, the Catholic Foodie. He checks in on me from time to time and says, uh, hey, I uh, haven't heard a new episode lately. Are you okay? <laughs> so, Craig, thank you so much for that. And uh, let's take a listen to what Craig had to say. Hi, Jeff. This is Craig Poirier calling from Vancouver, British Columbia, Canada. Just wanted to let you know we're uh, faith 
food met face with our family this year. Um, on Christmas Day, we went down to our church and uh, we cooked dinner for about 250 people who were either homeless seniors or just people that never had any place to go on Christmas Day in that. There's a lot of places that do uh, a little Christmas dinner before Christmas, but on the actual day of Christmas, there's usually nothing, and these people are just usually lonely that time of the day or time of the year. So we decided to do this Christmas dinner, and we had lots of our parishioners donate cookies and baking and goods and and turkeys and things like that. And we cooked it up, and uh, yeah, we had about uh, 250, 300 people that showed up for this, and we had a great time. Uh, my daughter Emily, she's into photography right now, so. She took a lot of pictures of people down there, and um, it was great. We had a good time. Wow. That's awesome. Thank you so much, Craig, for calling in and leaving voice feedback for the Catholic Foodie. Uh, you have a um, an app coming your way, so we'll connect via email, and I'll find out uh, what, what format you want that in. I've got some codes for you, and I'll send that your way. Thanks, uh, thanks to Divine Office. Dot org, one of the apps that they have. I've got one of those coming your way, so we'll talk via email. Uh, but man, I tell you what, wow, that is a fantastic way that food meets faith, certainly. Uh, anytime around the holidays where you have folks who are uh, less fortunate, you know, we do have the poor, as Jesus said, the poor is with us, they're, they're with us always. Um, what an awesome way to meet the Lord, really, to meet Jesus, because he says, you know, whatever you do, to the least of these you do to me. And what a great way to find where food meets faith in, in, in our lives, which is to literally feed Jesus, to feed the Lord in the poor. That is a fantastic thing. Thank you so much, Craig, again for calling, and also thank you for being so active on the Catholic Foodie Facebook page. You know, your insights and comments are always awesome and very, very much appreciated. Now, I received another call just a few days ago from a friend of mine, uh, Captain Jeff Nielsen from Georgia, who happened to be in Texas when he left this feedback. And I'm, you know, I'm sure you know who Captain Jeff is. You know, he's Captain Jeff of Catholic Weekend fame and uh, the Catholic Pilot or the Airline Pilot Guy podcast. And matter of fact, if you listened to last week's episode of The Catholic Foodie, he was the host. As I mentioned earlier, I hijacked that episode of The Catholic Weekend uh, podcast where I appeared as a guest a few weeks back and release that as an extra Catholic foodie episode. You know, I had lots of fun with the Catholic Weekend crew. They're, they're, they're a riot. They really are a riot. Um, Captain Jeff and Steve Nelson and Maria Johnson are the, the three folks, the regulars, the regular crew uh, that I was on with a few weeks back. And, uh, man, I just had so much fun. So I certainly hope that you enjoyed that episode. But as I said, you know, Captain Jeff called in the other day to leave voice feedback when he was in Texas. Of course, calling into the Catholic foodie, his feedback obviously had to do with food. He was standing in line outside of a very busy barbecue restaurant, and he even roped in another poor soul to talk to the Catholic foodie. <laughs> I've listened to this once already, so, you know, before I play it, I want to say, first of all, that I'm jealous. I mean, this place sounds absolutely incredible. And secondly, Captain Jeff, thank you so much for calling this in. This was, this is really great. Hey, Jeff Young, a Catholic foodie. I'm here in Austin, Texas, uh, on location at what some people say is the best barbecue in Austin and maybe, maybe the entire state of Texas. I don't know. It's called Franklin Barbecue. And uh, I'm here with uh, a recent resident of uh, Austin, Texas, and he was telling me all about this place. Uh, say your name again? Jimmy Fitzgerald. Hey, Jimmy. Um, so I was, I came up, walked up about um, half an hour ago, maybe even longer than that, I don't know, and there's a line of people here outside of this place. I guess it opened up at, I don't know, 11 o'clock, but people, uh, you said that people start forming a line here when? Like Usually about 9 a.m. Wow. And then they say they stay open long enough uh, until everything runs out, right? And which can be as early as 12.05. Wow. Yeah, I told the, uh, the lady at the front desk of my hotel that I was heading over here, and she kind of looked at me like I was way too late. And it was only 11 o'clock. <laughs> so I went over here anyway just to see what, check this place out. So, so what's the concept of this place? 
it started off, I, as I know the story, and I don't know a tremendous amount about it, but the story was their first six months they were in a trailer mm-hmm. and uh, did the barbecue out of the trailer. And it was just so big, their business was so big that they actually expanded to go into taking a small building. On their website, I noticed they have like a, a picture of it or a drawing of a trailer. Right. Is that like... It's actually said, out back. The is trailer's it? actually out back. And the okay. menu board that you'll see inside is from the trailer. Uh-huh. They just relocated it inside. And the uh, the other part that's interesting is, from what I understand, they, they're, they're, they're slow cooking their meat for 18 hours. Wow. And they have to man the pit 24 hours a day to kind of, you know, what they're doing in terms of the beef. So right. brisket's the big thing here in yeah. Texas, obviously. Yeah. They do sausage, doing. turkey, but brisket's really the king. Yeah. And, um, and, you know, people are coming in and taking 20 pounds to go, 10 pounds to go, and then people are coming in and ordering brisket and then getting brisket for tomorrow because if you're going to wait in line for an hour, you yeah. might as well get enough food for two days. Well, I noticed that uh, Jimmy was right ahead of me in line, and I noticed that uh, this, this uh, young lady came up and she had a clipboard with a, uh, a piece of... Uh, uh, was like a paper sack or something yeah, like that. Deli paper. Yeah, deli paper. There you go. And uh, she she asked people in line what they're going to have because I guess they want to make sure that they don't run out before, you yeah. know. So you don't want to stand in line for hours and then not have anything to eat, right? Right. And, and the line's gotten a lot bigger since we've, you know, still probably a dozen and a half people behind us since right. you got here. So I don't know if they've increased their capacity yet, but I know they're working on it. Yeah. You know? So you're in the, the restaurant business yourself, right? Yeah, I'm in town with a company called Texas Star Brands, and we're opening up our first brand is uh, Bob's Steak and Chop House, which is a brand out of Dallas. There's seven of them in the country, um, and we'll open up our first restaurant here in May. Awesome. Well, I'm going to have to come back here and check out, uh, what's the name of it? Bob's, uh, Bob's Steak, Steak and, and Chop, Chop House. House. Okay, cool. And it's on the corner of uh, 3rd and Lavaca. Okay. So it'll be, uh, be exciting with a cigar wine bar up on the roof. Uh-huh. And uh, it's, it's a... Um, uh, call it a guy's guy's steakhouse, you know, mm-hmm. big steaks, all prime, mm-hmm. you know, uh, prime fillets, prime strips, prime ribeyes, which not everybody actually does. Uh, yeah. it's, it's more unusual than you know. Okay. So, um, But it's big food, side dishes are included, that's the value added, you're not paying a la carte for everything. Right. And, uh, it's special. It's uh, I, I'm I'm in love with the food quality. Mm-hmm. So is that like a like a more of an upscale place? Or it is. is it? It's okay. definitely a five star steakhouse. Oh, and, I see. Um, it's it's usually big steaks, big wine is what people are usually having when they come in. Okay. Sounds good to me. Yeah. Everything but the cigar. I usually smoke one cigar a year. I don't do that anymore because usually the next day I go. Why did I do that? Yeah, I do about the same. I'm a one, one. Give me a Gramignet and a cigar about once a year, and I'm pretty happy. Yeah. Well, very cool. Well, hey, thanks for uh, thanks for telling us a little bit about Franklin Barbecue, and uh, you know, we've moved up a little bit closer to the front door. Looks like only about 20 people or so in front of us. So maybe we'll get in in the next. We're only half another hour. 35 minutes. 35 away. minutes. Four minutes. <laughs> now you said you, you you've uh, been here uh, how many times in the last this three weeks? This, this is probably in the last three weeks. Probably my sixth time. Wow, must be good. It's really good. Okay, well I'll let you know after uh, after I eat this stuff. I'll uh, I'll be back and uh, give you my my review. Well, I made it back to the hotel room and I am stuffed in that barbecue. Let me tell you, that was the best barbecue I've had in my life. I highly recommend Franklin Barbecue in Austin, Texas. Take care and God bless. Wow. <laughs> As I said earlier, I am jealous, first of all. It sounds incredible. And uh, thank you so much for sending in this voice feedback, uh, Captain Jeff. I mean, wow. I thoroughly enjoyed it, and uh, I do. I wish I could have been there. Uh, you know, we we really need to figure out a way for you to come back to New Orleans soon. We can... It won't be as good as Franklin, you know, barbecue-wise, but we can do some experimentation, maybe even find a place or two that serves really good oysters. What do you think? (laughs) All right. Anyway, finally, in the feedback department, my friend Father Mike Workhoven left a comment on my seafood gumbo post at catholicfoodie.com, and this is what he had to say. He says, Jeff, I've got a few questions. You know, first of all, I saute, I usually saute my Trinity, and of course, he's talking about the Trinity, right, down here. In, in South Louisiana, when you talk about the Trinity, in the kitchen at least, you're talking about uh, onions, bell pepper, and celery, okay? That's, that's because there's so many dishes. It's just part of the cuisine, right? So many dishes that, uh, that, that incorporate those three uh, onions, bell pepper, and celery that they, they call it the, the Trinity. So 
He says, I usually saute my trinity before I add it to the roux. Now, we're talking about making gumbo, okay? He says, have you ever done it that way? And what difference would it make in taste? Your way sounds a whole lot easier. Maybe I'm just creating more work. So that was his first question. Second question, I always add okra. You know, gumbo means okra stew. That The word gumbo means that. So it has to have some, right? But I found cutting it very thin and frying it makes it more appetizing to the masses. In other words, it makes it less slimy. But it does mean you probably need to add some filet to help thicken it since you lose some of the okra slime. What's your take on that? All right, that was question two. Now, question three, I always make a lot of gumbo, and chicken and sausage gumbo or turkey and sausage gumbo freeze wonderfully and I think taste better the second time around. Have you ever frozen seafood gumbo? I would think that if you reserved part of it before you add the seafood, you could freeze it and then add the seafood at the last part when you reheat it. Any thoughts? So that was question number three. And this is the response that I left for Father Mike over at CatholicFoodie.com. This was the post, by the way, for my uh, new and improved, like the best seafood gumbo recipe. I said, Father Mike, I've never sautéed the Trinity before adding it to the roux. I'm not sure what difference it would make in taste, but I do know that adding the raw Trinity to the roux cools it down a bit and prevents scorching. You know, once you add the Trinity, you're pretty much safe from burning the roux because the veggies release their water as they sauté. And I make my roux very dark, so uh, so much so that I want to do everything I can to prevent burning. Uh, it's very important. It's very, very easy to burn a roux. You cannot leave it unattended. And once you add that trinity, it really does um, help to safeguard burning the roux. Now, to answer the second question, you know, I never fried uh, the okra before adding it to the gumbo either. I think you're right, though. Frying it first would definitely cut down on the slime, which is an excellent thickener. If you fry it first, it's a great idea to have filet on hand, just in case, because you never know, right? You want to be prepared. Boy Scouts and all. I mean, you got to be prepared. Not only does filet thicken up the gumbo a bit, though, it also adds a wonderful fragrance to the bowl. It's got a wonderful kind of a bouquet to it, a very almost flowery kind of a, a, a fragrance to it. Uh, filet is a very nice thing. Typically, I wouldn't add it to a seafood gumbo with okra in it, but, you know, hey, you do what you want to, right? <laughs> There's no uh, filet police out there telling you, hey, you can't do that, right? You can do what you want to. All right. And then to answer the third question, you know, I'm with you, Father Mike. I always make big pots of gumbo, and we usually eat on it for days, uh, it's been a long time since I've had to freeze any leftovers, but I have frozen uh, chicken and andouille gumbo and turkey and andouille gumbo before. I have frozen that before, and that's always never, you know, it really is never a problem. But I have never frozen a seafood gumbo. You know, if you used uh, like a shrimp stock to make your seafood gumbo, which will give it that really uh, deep, uh, rich seafood flavor, not just water, right, but your seafood like a shrimp stock or something like that, um, or even a fish stock, you know, it'll give you that rich seafood flavor. If you if you make your gumbo with that, and then you do as you mentioned, which is reserve part of the gumbo to freeze before you actually add the seafood to it, then I think it would turn out fine. It'd be great, right? I would not freeze a seafood gumbo after the seafood had been added, though, right? The shrimp and the oysters and the crab meat, it just would never never recover from that. So I would not do that. But regardless, it sounds like you're doing some great cooking up there. <laughs> so bon appetit. And, uh, you know, in retrospect, too, after I received this comment, uh, yeah, I can now add even a few additional thoughts to that last question. Because just last weekend, I made a shrimp and okra gumbo. And I've got the post over there at catholicfoodie.com. You can read all about it. It's a cheaper version of a seafood gumbo and it man is just it's really good really 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 good it came out it was incredible I, I couldn't believe how well it came out but 
Anyway, Char was out of town on retreat, and I wanted to treat her when she returned on Sunday evening. So I made uh, the gumbo on Saturday afternoon, evening. You know, and the kids and I had to eat. So what I decided to do was uh, once the gumbo was ready for me to add the shrimp, I just took some of the gumbo out of the big pot, put some of it into a smaller pot, and added just enough shrimp for me and the kids. And it worked out perfectly. I mean, it really did. It was, it was, it was awesome. So I still had lots of shrimp left to add on Sunday when Char returned. And uh, we all thoroughly enjoyed the gumbo. It was delicious. We, we all thoroughly enjoyed it. It was fantastic. I didn't have to freeze it. But by adding the shrimp a little bit at a time to a smaller batch of the gumbo, that really ensured that the shrimp were always fresh and never overcooked. I mean, it worked out perfectly. And I imagine if you knew that you were going to have to freeze some of that gumbo, seafood gumbo, that you could just have a second pot on hand, transfer some of the gumbo over there, cook only what you knew you were going to need. And again, shrimp, if you're at, if it's a shrimp in, in, in okra gumbo or even oysters or even the crab meat, any, you know, any of that seafood you wanted to add to the gumbo, it literally takes three minutes, five minutes maybe at most to cook. You don't have to. You can add it just enough at a time of what you're going to serve. You know, I think that's how they do it in restaurants. They don't add all the shrimp and all the crab meat and all the, the okra or I mean, all the oysters to, to one big pot. No, they, they have a big pot already made, and they just take some of that out, stick it into a smaller pot, and they kind of cook it on the fly. They cook it as they need it. That way, you're always getting fresh seafood, not overcooked, in your in your gumbo. I think that's a perfectly uh, acceptable way to do it at home as well. So, excellent questions. Father Mike, thank you so much for taking the time to leave that comment over at catholicfoodie.com. I really appreciate it. And I also have to say, I miss you, man. I miss you. So when you're coming down, when you're coming down to New Orleans again, I'd love to see you. Father Mike and I went to school together. We were in the seminary together, the college level at uh, St. Joseph Seminary College, right here in Covington uh, at the, the Benedictine Monastery here of St. Joseph Abbey. And Father Mike is now up in Tennessee. That's where he lives. So uh, he's a pastor there in Tennessee. And every once in a while, he comes down to New Orleans to visit friends and family or to make a retreat there at the Abbey. So, Father Mike, if you're listening, come back, man. We miss you. We miss you. Come on down. You know, Mardi Gras coming up. We, I'm sure we could find something for us to do if you can make your way down this way. So thanks again for commenting over at CatholicFoodie.com. And uh, God bless you, my friend. I'd like the chef salad, please, with the oil and vinegar on the side and the apple pie a la mode. Chef and apple a la mode. But I'd like the pie heated, and I don't want the ice cream on top. I want it on the side, and I'd like strawberry instead of vanilla if you have it. If not, then no ice cream, just whipped cream, but only if it's real. If it's out of the can, then nothing. Not even the pie? No, just the pie, but then not heated. Uh-huh. I'll have what she's having. Today we're talking about king cake, you know, and um, I know what a king cake is because I eat and make king cakes every year, but you might be wondering what exactly a king cake is. Well, I'm here to tell you all about it. You know, first of all, a king cake is a brioche, and a brioche is a simple yeast dough that's uh, enriched with eggs and lots of butter. You know, according to the book Joy of Cooking, which is a great book, by the way, you can find a link to it in the show notes over at catholicfoodie.com. But according to the joy of cooking, the high butter content gives the impression that the dough is wetter than it actually is, leading to the temptation, which you must resist, to add more flour. So if you're used to baking and used to dealing with dough, you'll know what I'm talking about. It looks really wet. And brioche, matter of fact, is, is very easy to braid, which is why some of the king cakes you find down here uh, are braided king cakes. Now, I don't personally, with the ones that I make, I do not braid. Uh, but I have nothing against braided king cakes. I just never, I never do it myself. Now, king cakes are always round or oval, which is a sign of a crown. You know, it's a symbol of royalty. And some king cakes uh, are the basic cinnamon brioche. Others are filled with anything from 
cream cheese, raspberry or strawberry filling, or even a praline type of filling. Some king cakes are topped with colored icing. Others are topped with a white icing and different colored sugar sprinkles. Now, the colors are always the colors of Mardi Gras, purple, green, and gold. But what does all this mean? Why the reference to royalty? Why the specific colors? And for crying out loud, what's up with the plastic baby inside the cake? (laughs) Excellent questions. You know, if you go back to the origins of the king cake, uh, and there are similar traditions in Mexico and Spain and France and other places too, the, the basic symbolism comes from the Catholic celebration of Epiphany, also known as King's Day. You know, Epiphany, the culmination of the 12 days of Christmas, is traditionally celebrated January 6th. The celebration commemorates a scene in Luke's Gospel of the Magi from the East, also thought of as wise men or kings, coming to pay homage to the new king, the king of kings. And the celebration of Epiphany officially closes the Christmas season. But for those of us who live in South Louisiana, the celebration of Epiphany also opens up something. You know, it kicks up, it kicks off for us Mardi Gras season or carnival season. Now, the word carnival itself comes from the Latin carne vale, two words, carne vale, which literally means goodbye meat. It means goodbye flesh, but flesh in the sense of meat. And, uh, you know, for centuries, Catholics did not eat any meat at all or meat products like milk, for instance, or butter, which come from cows, during the entire season of Lent. So on Carnival Day, they celebrated by eating up any meat or meat products that they could find. Also, I'm sure there was a little bit of that sense of, hey, man, I better enjoy this now because I got 40 days coming up where I'm not getting any. So (laughs) got to get it while I can, you know. I'm sure they had that kind of mentality going on too. But in French, you know, including the Creole French down here in Louisiana, Carnival is called Mardi Gras or Fat Tuesday. And it's always, by the way, always on a Tuesday because Lent always begins on Ash Wednesday. So down here in South Louisiana, New Orleans in particular, we can come up with just about any reason to throw a party. I mean, we like to celebrate. So we stretch out Carnival Day. We stretch it out not just a day. It's a season down here. So between January 6th and midnight Mardi Gras Day, we celebrate so that we can enter Lent properly, I guess. (laughs) But it's funny, you know, our Modern celebration of the carnival season includes the baking of an estimated, now get this, an estimated 750,000 king cakes in the New Orleans metro area alone. Did you hear that? (laughs) 750,000 king cakes in the metro New Orleans area alone. That's incredible. Absolutely incredible. And I don't know if that includes all the king cakes that are shipped out all over the world by king cake uh, uh, bakeries, companies right here locally. I have no idea. It's it's, it's staggering. It really is staggering. So down or or during carnival season, uh, king cakes are bought or made and brought to offices to share with coworkers and to parties and family gatherings. You know, the the modern tradition dictates – uh, that 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 whoever gets the baby has to provide the next king cake. So, which is great, it's fun and all, but where did that tradition start? You know, well, in, in New Orleans, at least, uh, it began in 1871. The local newspaper down here, the Times-Picayune, ran this story back in September, this past September, as it recalled the beginnings of some of our Mardi Gras traditions. On September 5th, 2011, the Times-Picayune ran the following. Uh, The king cake tradition begins in New Orleans, right, 1871. This is what it says. The king cake tradition began in 1871 with the Twelfth Night Revelers, which is a group of folks who who began to mark uh, the celebration of Mardi Gras down here, or the King's Day, really, King's Day, the the, uh, uh, January 6th, uh, who marked the start of carnival season on the day the three kings arrived at the Christ child 12 days after his birth. 
At their ball, the revelers placed a golden bean inside their king cake, and whichever lady found the bean was named the queen. A Daily Picayune article from 1871 describes the 12th night revelers ball and the selection of their queen. Now, the revelers attempted to place the golden bean in the cake. However, the court fools were so disorderly and drunk uh, that they threw pieces of the cake at the ladies, (laughs) who were so appalled that they never divulged who had the bean. So the court that year went without a queen. Since then, New Orleanians have been having their cake and eating it too by searching for the baby and the king cake. Several New Orleans bakeries are known for their king cakes, and uh, the cakes come in many shapes and sizes. For example, at Tasty Donuts, David Simino said, We do the traditional McKenzie's recipe, a plain brioche dough. Over the years, they become more extravagant with the icings, the toppings, the fillings, and so forth. We've stuck with the traditional. And at Gambino's Bakery, Sam uh, Shelfo says, uh, we started using a Danish sweet dough sometime in the late 60s or early 70s, and there was really a huge change in popularity. Then they started adding fruit fillings and the like and things like that. Um, that's how it evolved into what it is today. So anyway, that's a, a, a just a short little, I guess, history tidbit there on the king cake is that way, way back in 1871, they actually have a newspaper article written in 1871, talking about the Twelfth Night Revelers and what went on at their ball uh, to celebrate Mardi Gras. And this happened, of course, on the 6th of January to kick off the season. And then we're going to choose a queen, and we're going to get more into the history of Mardi Gras in just a minute, but it didn't go so well that first time in 1871. (laughs) But we can, in fact, trace the tradition, the local tradition of king cakes back to that night in 1871. Is that amazing? I think that's amazing. And I, and I guess I should mention that this article really does stretch back to the very beginnings of Mardi Gras in New Orleans. You know, some have said, and Captain Jeff alluded to this in the last episode, that Mardi Gras actually started in Mobile, Alabama, not New Orleans. Well, that's true and false. Okay, here's what happened. The first carnival crew in New Orleans uh, was founded in 1857 by former members of the Cowbellian Derakin Society out of Mobile. Now, I, I have to tell you, I can't help but think that we need some cowbell sound effects right about now. Guess what? I got a fever. And the only prescription is more cowbell. <laughs> I love that. That was the uh, famous... Uh, Cowbell skit from <laughs> Saturday Night Live, uh, Fear the Reaper, right? Blue Oyster Cult with uh, Will Ferrell was in that, and, and Christ- Christopher Walken. You talk about funny. I love that uh, that skit. But when you hear that term, that original term, the Cowbellian Derakin Society, <laughs> it's all about cowbells and rakes, right? They carried ra- They carried rakes, big rakes, and had cowbells dangling from them. That's where they got their name from when they first started this society back in Mobile in 1830, okay, 1830. Wow, that's a long time ago. And it's also 27 years before the first crew was formed in New Orleans, right? However, here's here's where it gets tricky. However, Mobile's parades were not held on Fat Tuesday. They were not held on Mardi Gras. Those parades rolled on uh, New Year's Eve, all right? That's a completely different thing, New Year's Eve. Uh, You know, Mobile did not switch to uh, rolling their parades on Fat Tuesday until 1866, which was nine years after Mardi Gras was already rolling in New Orleans. So where did Mardi Gras start? Uh, I don't know. Some people may want to argue that it was in Mobile, but I'm not so sure. I mean, you know, there's a big difference between New Year's Eve. I mean, that's not even that's not even the same season, right? Season doesn't start till January 6th. Uh, not even the same season as Mardi Gras, which only starts at the Epiphany 
January 6th and goes through Fat Tuesday. So I'll leave that up to you. You can think whatever you want to think. I already know what I think. So very interesting. Anyway, what about the colors, right? You got uh, purple, green, and gold. Why those colors? Well, you know, purple represents justice. Green stands for faith, and gold stands for power. And these colors were chosen by Rex. Rex, which is Latin for king, right? Rex, that, that, that society, that crew, the crew of Rex, was formed, and uh, they, they were in their first parade. They did their first parade in 1872. And Rex, that year, chose those colors as the official colors of his parade that year. But people must have liked it a lot because it stuck. It stuck. And now those colors, purple, green, and gold, are known as the Mardi Gras colors. They're the official colors of Mardi Gras. And Rex, if you don't know this, Rex actually is the culmination of Mardi Gras. On Mardi Gras Day, the very first parade to roll that morning in New Orleans proper, in the, in the, in the parish, in Orleans Parish, is Zulu, which is uh, famous for lots of things. Uh, and I'll talk more about that in the next episode of The Catholic Foodie. But Rex follows it. And Rex is sort of like seen as the king, the king, 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 king of Mardi Gras, the Rex Parade. Now, there are some truck floats and things, uh, truck parades, they call them, that run, that roll after the Rex Parade. But Rex is sort of like the high point as far as parades go down here at uh, Mardi, for Mardi Gras in New Orleans. So that's, that's sort of why we have those colors. And now we're going to move on. We got, we're going to talk about king cake. You, you want to talk about a little food here? Talk about some king cake and what that's all about and how to make a king cake? Let's get to that. We're gonna be, uh, we'll talk about king cake in just a moment. Wow, something smells good. Those uh, goodies in there. Granny, Granny Pocket, the goodie lady? My goodness, she makes some good goodies. She's got a thing. It's like a, uh, it's like a uh, cookies, shortbread chocolate icing between very... It's good. Uh, it's very good. So how can you get your hands on some of these good goodies known as king cakes? You know, well, in our age of online orders and overnight shipping, you can have a genuine king cake in your hot little hands by tomorrow. Of course, you can always make one yourself, and I'm going to tell you how to do both. You know, Epiphany comes every year and opens up for us this season of celebration, but it also opens up a, se- a season of argument. <laughs> and these arguments... Uh, are all about who makes the best king cake. Uh, it seems like everybody's in one of three camps down here, either McKenzie's Bakery, even though they're closed now, and, and Tasty Donuts supposedly has their original recipe. But, you know, McKenzie's must have been a great king cake if people are still arguing about it, even after they're closed. Uh, Haydell's Bakery is another camp, and and finally there's uh, Manny Randazzo's, uh, which is another camp. Now, some of these arguments can be quite heated, uh, king cake down here is really serious business, and I must confess, you know, I am in the Randazzo's camp. You know, besides homemade, uh, Randazzo's, in my opinion, are the best king cakes, uh, but they're not cheap to order and ship. You know, Randazzo's basic traditional medium with uh, shipping included is forty six ninety five in the continental U.S., uh, and the prices can go as high as almost $70, depending on what you order. And wow, uh, it, it's much cheaper to make it yourself, and it's lots of fun, too. And that's why I'm going to tell you how you can make your very own king cake this year at home. Now, the recipe that I use is an adaptation of one by Chef Emeril Lagasse, and you can find it over at catholicfoodie.com. And I'm going to have a link to it, of course, in the show notes for this show over at catholicfoodie.com. But I'm going to give you the gist of it right here, right now. Here are the ingredients. You need uh, two packets of active dry yeast, which is about four and a half teaspoons of yeast if you've got a jar. You need half a cup of granulated sugar, one and a half sticks of butter, uh, melted, a cup of warm milk. You have, want to keep that around 110 degrees Fahrenheit. Five large egg yolks at room temp, four and a half cups of all-purpose flour, two teaspoons of kosher salt, a teaspoon of freshly grated nutmeg, teaspoon of grated lemon zest, a teaspoon of oil, I use regular olive oil in mine, uh, one pound of cream cheese at room temp, three and a half cups of confectioner sugar, one plastic king cake baby, 
which represents Jesus, of course, looking for the baby Jesus. Uh, or you can use a pecan half or something like that that may help. Uh, five tablespoons of milk at room temp. Three tablespoons of fresh lemon juice, a purple, then purple, green, and yellow food coloring, of course, for the icing or decoration. Now, what you do for the dough is you combine the yeast and the granulated sugar in a bowl of a stand mixer fitted with a, a dough hook. If you don't have a stand mixer, don't worry. You can still do the same thing by hand in a large mixing bowl. You add the melted butter, the warm milk, and you beat it for a minute at medium-low speed. Uh, with the mixer still running or with your hands still running, you add the egg yolks and uh, beat that for another minute or so. Then you want to add the flour, the salt, the nutmeg, the lemon, the lemon zest, and you beat that until everything is incorporated. You increase the speed to high and beat until the dough pulls away from the sides of the bowl and forms a ball or starts to climb up the dough hook, which is what my my mixer does. It <laughs> tends to climb up the dough hook. Uh, and, and then, anyway, as with any dough, you may want to add uh, water, a tablespoon at a time if you need to soften it up, or more flour to get the right results. But remember, it's a brioche, so that dough is going to seem wetter than it is because of all the butter, okay? So you may not really have to add the flour. Matter of fact, nine times out of ten when I'm making this, I don't even have to add the full four and a half cups of flour. Sometimes I only add four cups. I mean, it just depends. I, I, I try to play with it, go a little bit at a time so I can kind of gauge it and get a feel for it before, you know, I don't want to overdo it. And you are going to want to put flour down on the surface too as you kind of work with the dough by hand and form it into a, a ball. So um, you may want to just, just go light on the dough at first, I mean, on the flour at first, so you don't overdo it. All right. So once it gets about the right consistency, you want to remove the dough from the bowl. Use your hands, form it into a smooth ball. Uh, use uh, I use uh, regular olive oil, and not not extra virgin. Don't do that. So regular olive oil. I lightly oil a large mixing bowl. I place the dough in the bowl and roll it around so it's coated on all sides. And then I cover the bowl with plastic wrap and I set it aside in a warm, draft-free place for about two hours. What you want is you want it to double in size. And then what I start to do is work on the filling. And what I like personally, the one that I do is cream cheese. I love cream cheese filling. So in a large mixing bowl, I combine the cream cheese and about half a cup of confectioner's sugar. And I use a, a, a beater or a mixer, and or you can even do it with a fork if you have to. Um, and I blend all that together and, and set it aside. Now, once your dough, after two hours or so, after once the dough has doubled in size, I turn the dough out onto a lightly floured surface, which I use my kitchen table, believe it or not. I, I strip it bare and, and, and kind of flour the surface and use the kitchen table. And what I do is I use my hands and, and initially, and then a rolling pin, I, I roll out the, uh, the dough into a rectangle about uh, 30 inches long and 6 inches wide. Then I take the cream cheese filling and spread that out lengthwise over the bottom half of the dough. I flip the top half over the dough uh, or flip the top half over the filling, right? And then I seal the edges and uh, pinch the dough together at the end on the edges. And then I take that dough and, 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 and shape it into a cylinder and place it on a baking sheet. Now, what I use is a, is a big round pizza stone. And uh, I put it seam side down and I shape it into a ring and I pinch the ends together of the ring. So I make it a really big circle, right? I do the best I can to make sure there's no visible seam. Then what I do is I cover the ring with plastic wrap or a clean kitchen towel even. I set it aside in a warm, draft-free place, and I let it rise again until it's double in size, about 45 minutes. Meanwhile, I preheat the oven to 350, and once the, the cake has doubled in size, I remove the plastic wrap or the towel. I brush the surface of the cake with two tablespoons of milk. I use a spoon, and I kind of make sure I brush, because I don't have a brush. I use a spoon, but I brush the, the whole cake top of the cake with two tablespoons of milk and then I place the cake in the oven and bake it for 25 to 30 minutes right I, I kind of keep an eye on it at 25 minutes I check it I want it to bake until it's golden brown I don't want to overdo it though I don't want to dry it out so 25 30 minutes I remove it from the oven and place the cake on a wire rack so they can cool completely and when it's completely cool then I can insert that plastic baby or the pecan half or whatever from the bottom of the cake, right, from the bottom, I place it in there, hide it in there somewhere. So then I go and I make my uh, my icing. You know, in a mixing bowl, 
because you want this, this, you can make this while the cake is cooling. It's going to take a while for that cake to cool. And it has to be completely cool in order to put the icing on. And this icing is kind of like a poured icing. What I do is in a mixing bowl, I combine three cups of confectioner sugar, three tablespoons of milk, and three tablespoons of lemon juice, fresh squeezed lemon juice. I stir that well with a fork. And once it's well blended, I actually divide it into three small bowls. And then carefully, one drop at a time, I add a different colored food coloring, purple, green, yellow, to each of the bowls. And I stir each of those until uh, I stir each drop in to achieve the right color, right, the, 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 the desired color. And you can look over at catholicfoodie.com to see some examples of these colors. And so I get them, you know, I only put enough food coloring in there to get the right color. So once it's completely cooled, I can actually uh, pour the icing over the cake, and I use a spoon to do that. And I alternate colors, green, purple, gold, green, purple, gold, green, purple, gold. You, you get the idea, right? Alternating around the cake to get this, this beautiful-looking king cake. Pictures are over on catholicfoodie.com. If you do decide this year to make this king cake recipe, please let me know. I'd love to know how it turns out, A, and B, I would love to have a picture of your king cake to put on the website over at catholicfoodie.com. So please do let me know. Call me, 985-635-4974, or send me an email, jeff at catholicfoodie.com. Hi, I'm Junie. And I'm Ray. And And this this is Mary in the the Kitchen with Sarah (laughs) Reinhardt. Outside my kitchen window, the trees are bent as the wind howls across the fields. The ground was dusted with snow and the temperature finally dropped to winter levels last night. We're hunkered down today as I record this, and I'm trying not to drink too much coffee. I've been brewing tea and thinking about how cold and wonderful it will be to venture out later. One of the things I love to do on hunker down days is burn candles in my kitchen. There's something about the flame and the resulting fragrance that warms me. I've said it before, but it seems more true on the hunker down days of winter. My kitchen really is the heart of my home. In my current house, the kitchen is adjacent to our family room, so the places where we spend most of our time are all connected. As my children grow, and as I grow in my vocation, I see more and more the importance of my kitchen. Recently, I felt like I needed to master the art of chocolate chip cookies. Now, before you roll your eyes at how pathetic I am, let me just say that thanks to the Catholic Foodie Podcast and some very patient friends and family members, I have finally started to appreciate that cooking and baking is as much about process as it is about ingredients. I never thought I'd be a cookie-baking mom. But the look on my seven-year-old's face when she came in from school and smelled the freshly baked cookies was a little addictive. Maybe cookies aren't the most nutritious after-school snack, but of all people, she appreciated that I went to some effort to do it just for her. And man, were they good! Between the smile and the taste... They might be my favorite snack of all. When you look at life as a long series of humdrum days, it's easy to get overwhelmed and feel burdened. When meals are just another thing on your to-do list, it's easy to feel discouraged and disheartened. That must be why my kitchen has so many Marys in it. She's by my sink, on the shelf, and on the wall, to name a few places. She's my personal reminder that the role of my kitchen and of me in my kitchen is important. It's not just about what we eat, but that's important too. It is in part about making the heart a happy, thriving place, a haven for those who need one and a refuge for those who seek it. It's about integrating my faith and my love for my faith in everything, even my humdrum activities. Here's hoping that the hunker-down days of winter give you a moment or two to reflect on the importance of the heart of your home. Thank you so much, Sarah. That was Sarah Reinhardt, folks, with her Mary in the Kitchen segment. You can find more of Sarah and all the fantastic thing that she, things that she has going on 
over at snoringscholar.com. Snoringscholar.com. Thank you so much, Sarah. Here's a way you can be creative on a daily basis. Well, how else in your life can you actually create new things every day? And you have to eat. This is the thing we all agree on. If you're going to eat three times a day to the day that you die, why not be good at it? Well, we've come to the end of another show, folks. I have a few things I want to tell you about before we close down the kitchen for the night. Uh, first of all, I want to remind you that SQPN, the StarQuest Production Network, is in the middle of its annual giving campaign. Uh, are you a friend of SQPN? If not, become one. Go to sqpn.com and click on the Donate button on the right side of the screen. It is so important for us to support good Catholic content online, and SQPN is committed to producing excellent Catholic content. Please do become a friend of SQPN today. Also, this Sunday is Super Bowl Sunday. Unfortunately, the Saints are not in the game this year, but there's still cause to celebrate. And I have teamed up with a group of fine folks, home cooks and foodies, who love to cook and eat and write about it. And uh, we are going to host an online Twitter party. It's called Saucy Super Bowl or uh, Sunday Supper. Saucy Super Bowl Sunday Supper, I guess you could say. Uh, We're committed to getting folks back into the kitchen and cooking so that they can have a delicious supper to share with their families. So we all have contributed some delicious recipes that will hopefully inspire you and many others to do just that, cook and dine together. If you're on Twitter, just search for the hashtags Saucy Super Bowl and and Sunday Supper. Of course, you can head over to catholicfoodie.com for more information and for links to the Super Bowl goodies. I'm bringing some special grilled beef jalapeno poppers that I cooked up just for this event. Uh, You can check that out over at catholicfoodie.com. Also, before I close out, I want to thank my friend Paul Camerata of the Sink Cast for a delightful lunch the other day. Paul was in New Orleans on business, and we were able to get together for lunch at Chef John Besh's restaurant, Luke. And uh, it was great to see Paul again and to share a meal with him. And uh, please do keep an ear out, because on an upcoming episode of the Sink Cast, you'll be treated to some foodie talk that we recorded at the table while having lunch that day. That was a lot of fun. So, Paul, thank you so much. It was a pleasure seeing you again. Well, I think that this pretty much wrapped things up for us today, folks. Don't forget to check out the show notes over at catholicfoodie.com. You can also find me on Facebook at facebook.com slash catholicfoodie, on Twitter at twitter.com slash catholicfoodie. And if you're on Google+, Plus, just search for me. I'm there search for Catholic Foodie, and uh, I will I will link up with you over there too. So thank you for joining me today. It's been fun. Hopefully I have my voice back next time. And speaking of next time, until then, bon appetit. SQPN, leading the way in Catholic new media.